Welcome to the Israel Daily News Podcast. Today, I am revealing to you a whole different side of me that you did not get to hear about much, and that's because it was under wraps and secretive until the show came out just a month ago. My name is Shanna Fold, and I am the host of the Israel Daily News podcast. However, in 2021 and 2022, I spent a total of six concentrated months researching for a Showtime series called Ghosts of Beirut. It was a serious journalistic research and a process of interviewing that took me all over the country of Israel, meeting with Mossad heads, former prime ministers, Lebanon war experts and people who deeply knew the story of Imad Mognia, who was a top Hezbollah official. He was removed in a joint CIA-Mossad operation in 2008. I worked closely with the writers of Fauda, Avi Isakharov, and world-famous actor Lior Raz, who were both the writers and executive producers for this show. The two are best known for their hit show, Fauda, which highlights the Palestinian-Israeli conflict with a lot of depth and character development, and it is a hit and an institution here in Israel. Issacharov came to me with the project idea some months prior, and we closed the deal and began to work in 2021. This summer, after the show came out, I was invited to my own program, the Sunset Series, which I run with Jonathan Feldman. It's a weekly event I host with internationals here in Tel Aviv. I bring in the community to mix, mingle, get to know each other, and get exposed to change makers in the state of Israel who are making an impact on the global stage. After bringing high-profile speakers for four years to this organization, I was up for the thrilling task of talking about my six-month research for Showtime's Ghost of Beirut docudrama series. There are four parts to it. The talk was live and had questions and answers at the end, but I recorded the whole program and I'm going to play the audio for you here because... I care about the listeners of the Israel Daily News podcast, and I don't want you to miss a thing. Keep in mind that I also shared my takeaways from my experience along the way, explaining what I've learned in my life after consuming so much knowledge and so many stories of survival along the way. And I took some pretty deep takeaways, and I I want to share them with you. I think you'll find it compelling. So first, I'd like to say that I was hired to be the researcher for Ghosts of Beirut. And being a researcher was not something that I ever really expected to do on long-term projects. So this was the longest-term project that I've ever had. As a journalist, we are typically used to turning out copy. Sometimes it's from one minute to the next. Sometimes it's from one day to the next. So this six-month project was nothing like I had ever experienced in my life. It was nothing that I had ever done before. And I, I didn't really have anything to base it off of except for my, my ability to interview people and allow my research to take me from one interview to the next. So I just want to share a little bit about how I got this, uh, I got this role. Avi Isakharov is the writer of Fauda. I've actually met people who said to me, wow, I didn't know that Fauda had a writer. And that always makes me laugh because as a writer, we are very aware of how important writing is for the backbone to any project, any advertisement that you see, any commercial that you see, anything, anything that you read, anything that has 
anything that has a story, there's a script behind it. And so people get very excited about Lior Raz, the main actor in, uh, in Fauda, the international TV hit series. I got excited about Avi Isakharov, someone who I met and it was my intention when I went to cover for the Jerusalem Post uh, to make it a point to seek out the writer of Fauda. I was there to cover the season premiere and during that time I made a beeline for the writer and I said I want to hear all about the writing. And I did hear all about the writing, and that was the beginning of a long-term relationship with, in my opinion, the most important person behind Fauda. Forget about the actors, forget about the cameramen. The writing on the page is something you're not hearing enough about. And so for all of you that are thinking about uh, what skills that you need, I want you to think about writing, and I want you to think about the next, uh, the next backbone behind the writing, which was the research. I had a humbling opportunity to provide a grand research in, an ex in a time where I'm used to doing a lot of writing. I'm used to taking my research from one second to the next and putting it into my own words. This was the first time that I really had to conduct research and just hand it over. And that was... Um, something that was really hard because you don't see the results. You don't see the immediate results. When you're a writer, you do your research and the next thing you know, you've got the words on the page. People are giving you feedback about it. In this situation, I spent six months in agony, not having any idea how my research was going over. Well, I'll tell you that I watched all four of the series of Ghosts of Beirut. Um, as they trickled out, they were released one a week in the last month. And I was, um, I was probably the most proud of myself that I've been uh, in my journalistic life. And um, thank you. <laughs> I got to see images and words and ideas on the screen in front of me and I, I went back into my notes for you all and I got to look at something today that really tied it all in for me. And it was a photograph that I took of uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. He had handwritten um, on a paper the way that Imad Mugnia, the lead character of The Ghosts of Beirut, uh, the picture that was written up, drawn up, of his assassination. And he drew it out for me. I took a picture of it, forgot all about it until I went through my notes to prepare today's talk. And it made me realize just how many people I met, how much information I consumed, and how much went into this four-part series and how much information is really jammed into four hours. We'll start there. This all happened when I got exiled into New York from, from Israel. I hadn't, I hadn't made Aliyah yet. I was there. I got the call that we were going to do a project about an assassination. So I started reading books when I got back to Israel. I started reading books about Hezbollah, about Imad Mugnia. Imad Mugnia was somebody that if you were in the world of intelligence, you absolutely knew who he was. Every Israeli uh, intelligence official, soldier, anyone that I spoke with, maybe not a low-level soldier, but the people that were more involved in intel intelligence and planning, knew who this guy was. The Israelis were on him since 1979. And it took all the way up until 2007 for them to collect enough research 
to be able to figure out where he was. Now, why was Imad Mugnia, the main character of this series, why did the Israelis want him? Why did the Americans want him? Why did the French want him? Well, I will tell you, he was responsible for the murder of some 250 um, multinational force, as they were called, soldiers who were in barracks in uh, Beirut. At the time, it was 1982. There was a lot of instability in Lebanon. Israel had a force at the border. Uh, the Americans had their forces. There was a small force from France as well. And this is the time, and, and this is an important thing from the series that I would like everyone to remember, uh, suicide bombings. We here in Israel, unfortunately, know a lot about suicide bombings there, but it, it's, you don't really think about where did they get started. Suicide bombings got started, and I learned this, and we're proving now to the world with this series that suicide bombings, the origin of them, was 1982 Beirut, Lebanon. Imad Mugnia was able to convince young, poor Lebanese men from villages that their lives would be worth more once they were six feet under. He was able to get inside the minds of young, impressionable teens and convince them that their families would be happier with them if they would be martyrs. This was the beginning. I think many of us, as most of us were probably born after 1982, around 1982, our entire lives we knew what suicide bombings was. This was the first instance that something such as a suicide bombing was, happen and no was happening and nobody could really put a finger on it. Today there was a headline in the Jerusalem Post saying that uh, there is a new committee that is convening to review a different suicide bombing. There were three of them. Uh, a different suicide bombing. There were two in 1982 and one in 1983. And in 1982, there was another bombing of is Israeli barracks, um, and about 76 Israelis died. About um, a dozen Lebanese died in this second uh, bombing. And this was a young man who got in his car and drove through the security barrier into the Israeli barracks, pressed the button, and blew himself up, killed 76 Israelis, and it was a nightmare. The entire building fell to the ground. And until this day, there is some kind of a cover-up um, of this being referred to as a gas leak. Now, if you watch the show, you'll see in some of the opening scenes that you'll see this young man driving his car in and exploding himself. Uh, so there is now a review, and this news came out today, I mean today, that some 40 years later there, are, there is a, uh, going to be a convention of intelligence officials coming together to come to terms with the fact that this was a suicide bombing and not a gas leak, whether it is that people did not want to take responsibility for the fact that this happened under their noses, whether it was that the security guard was sleeping, which is a rumor that he was sleeping when this happened, whatever it was, you take a, ve uh, a vehicle, drive in, blow yourself up, not easy to, uh, to combat. So this is something that's still very much relevant today. A lot of this work came to me through a man 
named um, Shimon Shapira. Shimon Shapira was one of the first names that I was given by Avi Isakharov, who, by the way, was uh, a journalist for most of his life, and, and it'll probably make sense to you all why I look up to him so much. Uh, he was a journalist for many, many years in the field writing, and what he has been able to brilliantly do is take the stories that he consumed as a journalist and now put them onto the big screen. And one thing that uh, a lot of people say about him is that he's able to make villains into humans. And that's sort of the, um, that's sort of the essence of, of his work in Fauda, in Ghosts of Beirut, is taking people that you would otherwise not be able to relate to because perhaps they're Imad Mugunia, responsible for the largest murder of Americans since World War II, and you might not be able to relate to him. But in this series, you do. And so one very interesting person that I met was Shimon Shapira. Shimon Shapira, for whatever reasons, studied Imad Mugunia his entire life as an academic. He published little books, they look like children's books, um, about uh, Imad Mugunia. I laugh because they're picture books, but inside are really deadly, criminal, crazy uh, writings about him. And this man made it his life's business to write about Imad Mugunia. I sat with him for almost the entire duration of our six months, week after week, just consuming information from him firsthand. Um, and he kept saying, read the book, read the book. I did read the book, but I do want to say that I got so much more from sitting down with him and asking questions than I ever could have gotten just from the little manuscripts that he put together. And that's the power of asking questions. So I want to remind everybody that just when you think you've read it all, sit down with the people who really know and ask them questions. Okay, so that's one thing. Another interesting highlight that I'd like to point out here from Mr. Shapira, and I had to bring in all of the Israeliness that I had accrued with me from my first couple of years living in Israel in order to, uh, in order to work with him, is that he was doing his own thing. And why do I talk about that? I am an independent. This project was one of the largest, if not the biggest project that I have been given as an independent contractor. I do a lot of my own work. I run the Israel Daily News podcast. I write for a variety of news organizations. I host conferences and I just do a lot of media and I'm doing a lot of it independently. Amos Shapira spent his entire life independently working on the case of Imad Mugunia. I recently saw a clip by, um, uh, what's the name of George Costanza in real life, if anybody knows? Thank you. Jason released a clip talking about what it's like to be an artist today. And I watched it and it really resonated with me and I want to share this takeaway with you all. He says that what it means to be an artist today is both working on your own things and working with others at the same time. At the same time, it's no longer a situation in which you are waiting to be chosen. Okay, and I, I really, I, I want to give you guys some takeaways that I learned uh, during my research, and this is one of my takeaways. Shimon Shapira was not waiting for someone to decide that he or she wanted to do a project about Imad Mogunia. He was ready. He had spent his entire life looking after Imad Mogunia. He had 
chapters and chapters and chapters. He got his own credit. His name, his own credit. I, I shared a page of the credit. Shimon Shapira had his own page on the credits at the end of this film. That's a big deal. That's a big deal in Hollywood. So what I mean to tell you is that you always need to have an ecosystem of things that are happening for you, especially if you are an independent. You need to both be writing your story and be ready to jump in and write somebody else's story. So I hope that you take that with him. I think that Shapira is in his 70s. And this is the crown achievement of his life to have his works be on the screen in four, in four parts of a docudrama. So, uh, and that's what this show is. It's a docudrama. It's a highly researched uh, drama. It's a dramatic retelling of the show. I watched it. I can tell you it's highly accurate. And it's, uh, it's, it's really close to all of the research that, that I did. Let me tell you also about some of the people that I was able to and had to interview along the way. I sat down with maybe 40 plus people for this research. Uh, some of the names that you might recognize, Tamir Pardo, former Mossad head, Yossi Cohen, former Mossad head, Amos Gilad, Major General, Ram Yavne, IDF Brigadier General, Amos Yadlin, Head of Military Intelligence, uh, Zohar Palti, Mossad head, um, a, a Druze man who told me a story that never made it into the, uh, into the show because it was too sensitive. Um, but I'll tell you quickly what it was because it was pretty, it was pretty creepy. It was a story about how Imad Mognia uh, tortured somebody who actually got free, um, tortured him to near death. The guy was a Lebanese. He made it out somehow. He escaped from his torture chamber and uh, became a religious Jew. Um, crazy story. Didn't make it into the show because we couldn't get a hold of him because he didn't want to talk about Imad Mognia because his uh, trauma from this man was so deep and unhealed. Um, but that was, that was an interesting one. Uh, former Foreign Affairs Minister of Israel, Gabi Ashkenazi, this was a hoot. Visiting this man, I visited the former uh, Foreign Affairs Minister of Israel at his pool club. Okay, this is how he wanted, this is where he requested that uh, we join him. He asked me, how much Hebrew do you speak? I said, he said, good enough, I'll speak zero English. So he did, we did the Hebrew in, uh, we did the interview entirely in Hebrew. And uh, by the way, Gabi Ashkenazi was the chief of staff during his murder. So he had quite a bit to say during his assassination. Um, and I think the most interesting person that I'd like to share a few words with, uh, with you is my interview with Ehud Olmert, uh, who was an enormous, enormous source of information uh, for this project. He is the former Prime Minister of Israel, if you don't know. He was imprisoned, if you don't know. So he's a little controversial. And I do have a takeaway about meeting with Ehud Olmert. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the fun uh, facts and figures that he gave me. But before we get there, I just want to say, what a charismatic guy. Ehud Olmert was, I think, the most charming person that I've ever met in my life. 
And it really made a lot of sense to me how he became the prime minister. And one thing that I'd also, I wanted to give you guys some takeaways from the research uh, because, of course, I could tell you about my, my process in researching and interviewing, but I also want to tell you some of my takeaways, like I told you about always be working on your own, but be willing to work for others as well. Here's another one. Be charming. Be a people's person. Be someone that wants to sit down with you. Because when someone wants to sit down with you, the world is yours. You can be the prime minister. That's what I learned from Ehud Olmert. I'm sure he has a lot of other skills and talents, but he enchanted me. When I sat down, he was so friendly. He didn't make me feel like I was the researcher. He made me feel like a valued member of the team. It was a great experience interviewing him. I silently took notes, but he made an effort to make eye contact with me. He made an effort to make me feel seen. He gave me his personal phone number at the end of the conversation, and he treated me with so much respect. And I would like to pass that on. As a former prime minister, you don't need to prove to anyone who you are, especially, certainly not a researcher for a, for a TV show. And yet he did it anyway. And that's another takeaway that I think you should all take with you, is about being pleasant about uh, bringing your best foot forward, about making people feel good about themselves, and I think it just might take you a long way. So let me tell you a little bit about the crazy research that I learned with Ehud Olmert, and I do want you all to, um, I do want you all to watch the show. So I won't give it all away, but let's start here. He started off with asking, with, with talking to us about how frustrating it was for him that the Americans claimed this assassination. Let's backtrack a little. The CIA and the Mossad joined forces to eliminate Imad Mugnia, who is the biggest force behind Hezbollah. Okay, he was the young man in the streets in South and, and Central Lebanon who was gathering people up for the resistance, and he was second in command for Hezbollah. And he was very, very respected by the Iranians. And this was important to him because that meant getting money. Okay? This was very important. What? What year is this? What year is this? He started in 1982. And by 2008, he was assassinated. So it took all of that time. And, and all of this time that everyone's tracking him, he's building, building, building. And everyone wanted him dead, but nobody could find him. He was so silent. He was so out of the public eye. He was so, uh, no, it's called Ghosts of Beirut because he was called a ghost. Nobody knew who he was. Not even his wife knew who he was. Okay, so when we talked with Ahud Olmert, he said, bullshit, that it was a Mossad CIA operation. They just provided us an entry ticket into Syria. I thought that was fascinating. He talked about his dealings with President Bush, who was his counterpart at the time. Um, very interesting things. And what he explained was that the Israelis prepared the explosives. What the Americans did to make this operation happen was they provided the infrastructure. Israel didn't have an embassy in Syria, still doesn't, and the United States did, and they were able to give the Mossad agents passports, bring them in, give them a place to stay, provide them the things that they needed, and also get a sign-off from the President of the United States to kill Imad Mugnia and only Imad Mugnia. One thing that Ehud Olmert wanted me to know and wanted everyone to know was that Qasem Soleimani 
You might know him because he was assassinated not that long ago. Lived 12 extra years because Ehud Olmert was on a plane in the air when Imad Mugnia was exploded in a, in a hidden car bomb, when he was uh, about to go back to his secret girlfriend that he was cheating with. And, uh, and so Qasem Soleimani, who was another major terrorist, was, his life was spared because the United States president didn't want to start a war with Iran and didn't want to uh, be responsible for his killing. Despite the three walked out, there was another uh, terrorist named Mohammed. The three of them were meeting. There was the perfect opportunity for Israel to eliminate their most hated and wanted targets. But bureaucracy, bureaucracy, bureaucracy. Ehud Olmert couldn't give the thumbs up. He was in the air coming back from a, a, tr a business trip in Germany. And only Imad was eliminated. This was 2008. Uh, and like I said, he drew out the killing zone for me so that I'd be able to see how precise it was. It was right near a kindergarten. That's how precise the Mossad is, that they were able to just get who they needed to get. I also did a deep research on Mayor Degan, who was a major key element. He was the Mossad head at this time. And uh, I went all the way up to the border. Uh, I got to, this research took me all around the country. I got to see how people live. And by the way, people live very nice outside of Tel Aviv, just in case you didn't know. Uh, I didn't know. I got to visit a lot of people's homes and a lot of different greenery. I went to the border of Lebanon and uh, sat with the family of Mayor Degan, scanned photos, talked to his family and friends, and found out that one part of his major success was having an extremely supportive wife and supportive family who made sure that everything was so, so, so cushiony for him that he was able to really focus on his work. And when he came home, he didn't talk about it a drop. Another interesting little bite for you about the Mossad head, Mayor Degan. He was a phenomenal painter. I went to his house. His entire home was covered in absolutely incredible real-life images of humans, nature, people. He was a very artistic guy. And I also thought that was a nice takeaway for all of you who might be very involved in your careers, very involved in one thing, have an identity. I thought it was really interesting that one of the most important key players in Israel had an artistic talent and was using it probably as a means of therapy to be able to deal with the rest of his life. And I'd like all of you who are dealing with life here in Israel, having struggles to find your thing that you do that allows you to be great in your job because it takes away some stress from you. I'm going to leave you off with a, a very important last story from my research, I sat down, and, and this is another little life lesson. It took me six months to come all the way back to 1982. When you're doing research, you let the research flow. You have to trust the process. You have to trust that whoever you're going to interview next is going to lead you to the next, to the next, to the next. And that is exactly what happened. And when I got down to month six, and I found this gem of an interview, I was shocked that I hadn't come here before. And I thought it was a very good metaphor for life, that what I was looking for in month one in research for 1982 only came to me when I had finished in 2008. I had to go back to 1982. 
Remember I told you that 76 Israelis were killed in a suicide car bombing in Beirut? Well, I met one of the five survivors, and he is the CEO of Yediot Ochronot Book Publishing. I bet you didn't know that. Not many people know that. He hid it for 40 years. He became one of the most successful publishing houses in the country. And he was buried under feet and feet of rubble in 1982 Lebanon. He was a, a part of the explosion. He went underneath the ground. He was so far underneath the ground that he couldn't even hear footsteps. He, sa he saved his voice, he saved his energy because he recognized that he was gonna be down there for a long time and that he was gonna need it for his one scream. His one scream. He was down there for nine hours when he heard voices above and he let out his one scream. And he had heard everybody around him screaming for nine hours and they all died because they had run out of energy. He screamed, paramedics dug a hole, sent an Israeli uh, emergency service upside down for their head to meet his head to be able to have a conversation with him. Someone was holding that person by his feet. And they said to him, we're going to cut your legs off so that we can get you out of here. He had blood in his eyes. He couldn't see, okay? He couldn't see, and he had not eaten or drank. He said something came over him, and he absolutely refused. He said, not going to happen. You will not cut off my legs. And they said, this is the only way we can get you out. He said, you will not. Something took over him. He wiggled his left leg. He was able to wiggle his left leg. And because of that, he was able to get freed from underneath the rubble. He came home with, a, with an open split head. They, they flew him into Israel. He was sewed up. He went through extensive physical and mental therapy. Till this day, he sleeps with the lights on. He has immense trauma. The last thing that he did before the explosion was have a black coffee. And he has one every day. And he says he looks into it every day and reminds himself that today is a day to live life. He spent many years rehabilitating himself. If you saw him today, you would never, ever know what happened to him because of how much love he poured into himself and the way that he was able to rehabilitate himself. And I want to just leave you with the idea that he said when he came from the rubble, he had a rebirth. If this man could rebirth himself, and become the CEO of one of the biggest publishing houses in Israel. I think all of you can succeed in this nation as Olim Chadashim, and I hope that you do it with pride. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shana. Wow. Okay, what we're going to do now is take questions and answers. Keep it focused. One question. Give us one, se one sentence and uh, go ahead. Thank you, John. It was an excellent talk. Um, I want to ask, because uh, you talked about the research component the process, I want to know what are the first questions you ask someone to get 
think many of you who know me will laugh about this, but I don't usually take a lot of time to get people comfortable. Um, <laughs> I typically jump right into it. Uh, I know that um, some of these topics were very sensitive. And uh, what were some of my first questions? I have to tell you that I did this research in 2021 and part of 2022, so it's been a while. I usually sit down with somebody and I explain to them what the project is about and what we want and why they have been selected and why they are the expert that I am choosing to interview. When you do that, you give somebody pride, you give somebody the feeling that they're important, and when you let someone know that they're the selected expert, it gives them the opportunity to share with you um, with a feeling of respect. And that's usually how I um, start my interviews. Thank you, Shanna, for that wonderful message at the end of your talk. Uh, I just want to know from you as a journalist, what do you find is most rewarding about your profession? The most rewarding part of my work I never reward myself. I just slap myself over and over again. Um, I, I feel rewarded. I'll tell you, I, recent, I, I do a lot of important work. And recently, I released a, a, an article uh, about the Olim Chadashim community of Tel Aviv. And my idea with it was that while many people look at Tel Aviv as a very secular city, and uh, at one time, there was a lot of antagonism toward religious people in Tel Aviv. Uh, but I feel that that is going away. And I wanted to write about the thriving community in Tel Aviv of young olim and young people that care about their Jewish identity and are on a, a big spectrum of religious observance and are finding this place the most comfortable place to be because other communities might be too restrictive or might not have a feeling of community at all. And that was just sort of an idea that I had been playing with for a while. And finally, one day, I decided to write my ideas down and try my best to get it clear. And I got so much feedback from people telling me that they felt seen, that they felt recognized, that I was able to use my words to describe something that they had been thinking about too, and that they had been feeling too, but they didn't have the words to say what it was. And I think the most rewarding part of my job is finding the words to say what it is and to getting a message across to people in a way that is clear, without confusion, and um, that really drives the message home. Very good question. So the question was, Imad Mourounia was from Lebanon, so why was he assassinated in Damascus, Syria? Great question. Imad Mourounia had a side chick, uh, and she lived in Damascus. And that was keeping him coming back and coming back and coming back. But his original reason for going to Damascus was um, that he felt safe there, and he felt he could do business there, and he felt that he wasn't being watched there. And he was aware that he was aware that the world's greatest powers were looking for him. Uh, and he felt most uh, secure in, in Syria. So he started to go to Syria, and in his business trips to Syria, he developed a relationship with a woman, and that was sort of the beginning of the end. Don't cheat on your wife. Thank you, Shana. Uh, 
clearly you spoke with former prime ministers and people that work in Mossad that know a lot of confidential top secret information. Were there any questions you asked that they were not willing to answer that you wish you received answers to? There is one question. Who pushed the button? We all wanted to know who pushed the button. And for some reason, we could not get a resounding answer on who pushed the button that uh, blew up the car bomb and eventually killed Imad Mounia. We know who was in the Situation Room. We know that the Situation Room was 24 hours. We know that people were camped out there and we know who was there. But for some reason, no matter who we spoke to, including Ehud, um, we couldn't figure out who pushed the button. Uh, or it just wasn't revealed, or it was some kind of a display of respect that they didn't want to make it. There were, there were some little uh, issues of respect in which they didn't want to make it seem that it was a party killing this guy. Um, and so they didn't want to tell us who pushed the button. Um, and aside from that, I am glad that you asked that question because one thing that, that made me laugh today was uh, the former prime minister, we, at, we um, he asked us if we were in touch with the uh, confidential, there's a department in Israel that works with media to let them know what information shouldn't be released because it's, it's dangerous. And we said, we're in touch, we know. And then he said, okay, we'll throw all, that on the, throw all of that in the garbage, the Prime Minister said, because the only people that will be harmed by this story is Mayor Dagan, former Mossad, and Imad Mugnia, and they're both dead. So write whatever you want. Okay, I will ask the last question, which kind of dovetails this, which is, what do you think, um, are there messages for today of going back to the 1980s and in Lebanon, either messages or just kind of a feeling like Hezbollah's still there, you know, there's another terrorist who's, there's, now there's Nasrallah, and take him out, who will it be next? Uh, what do we look at back uh, 40 years later, and uh, what can be the messages? That's a great question, thank you. So uh, there, are, there are a couple. One is if you think that if you think something and you think that you think it and you feel it, you're probably right. That was a big one from throughout this from throughout this experience. Um, m there were many people along the way in Israeli intelligence that felt that they knew something about Imad Mugnia, and that and there were people at the beginning who knew that he was a very dangerous man, but weren't encouraged enough to do something about it and didn't feel confident enough to raise hell about it. Um, people felt that they didn't know what they were talking about or that they needed more evidence or that they were just being ridiculous and silly. And there were people that thought that those suicide bombings were suicide bombings. And the people who were in the box, the people who had been living their lives the same way and the intelligence officials that you know were a little older and weren't willing to look outside the lines they were the ones who really who really didn't benefit in the end by listening to the younger people who had ideas who thought that they knew something who felt something and so all of these different people who had a hunch had to wait in order to be able to act on that and so I think that's something that we can all take away in our day-to-day -day lives is when you think something, when you feel something, go with it. You're probably right. And don't wait for somebody else to come in with the evidence. Go find the evidence yourself. 
And in a, in a, grander, in a grander scheme in terms of uh, Hezbollah and terrorism, that is a tough one because we know that Hezbollah originated mostly in response to the Israeli invasion of, of Lebanon. Um, so maybe, in my humble opinion, we can let other countries work out their own problems um, as long as we recognize that it's not going to be an immediate threat to us or you can play the defensive instead of play the offensive. And there were a lot, a lot, a lot of people that felt this way about the first and second Lebanon war. There were uh, Dov Eichenwald, the man who was pulled out from the rubble, he, did, he was on reserve duty. He did not believe in this war. He did not want to go to this war. And everyone that he worked with felt the same way. And I thought that that was a very telling experience because the Lebanon wars were not, were not successful. People talk about them today with great distaste um, and disturbance. And when you send an army out that doesn't have a belief in what they're doing, you're going to see those results. And I think that we're seeing that happen on the international stage right now with Russia. You have people that don't believe in their cause. And when you have soldiers that don't believe in their cause, you have a problem. Okay, thank you, Shana. Thank you. Thank you, we appreciate that you came and spoke for us. And look forward to having you back next week. All right. Well, that is it for the special edition of the Israel Daily News podcast with Shanna Fold. That's me. I'm Shanna Fold. Some people actually made a joke on the evening of my talk that I had done a good job interviewing myself. Please reach out via email at shannafold at gmail.com with questions, comments, or even requests for a live talk for you or your community, whether that's in person or via Zoom. I hope you enjoyed. Have a great and productive day. Tá